Blog Talk Radio. All right, so we have Anito. Anito, you're on the air. We're here. Lee's here. Hi, Ben's here. Ben's my brother. Oh, he's very
Richmond Comic Con. Yep. That's actually, actually, no, it's not. It, it's on the 19th. Yeah, it's on the 19th. So a month and two days from now, Richmond Comic Con. Beth and I will not be there, but we will be there with Marsha. So uh, you can go hang out with them and, uh, yeah, and check out the spooky merch there at the Richmond Comic Con. Uh, oh, oh, and uh, starting this next month, we have a – Yeah, we have tweaked our schedule. So we're – Effectively, 365 days a year now for tours. It's official. It's official. So there are some caveats to this. Um, basically, we do still have our fixed schedule on, like, the weekends. So, uh, you know, if you look at our calendar, you're going to see something like Churchill Chillers or Shadows of Shaco, Spectres and Shades of Corbin, whatever have you, will be scheduled on, like, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Depends on what time, what time of year it is, stuff like that. Every other night of the week where we don't have something fixed on the schedule, you will see an option for choose your own tour. And it's exactly what it sounds like. We have six walking tours now here in town, and uh, you will have the opportunity to be the uh, to set the stage for any given night. Uh, first come, first serve, you uh, go ahead. If you go in there, you jump on that slot. You have to buy a minimum of two tickets, and you also have to do it two days in advance. Um, so, so, for example, if you on the uh, 9th of August choose your tour and you haven't had a chance to go on our show's inspectors tour at Fort F, you would select that, you'd be the first one to expect it, you chose the tour for that night, and then becomes a public tour for everybody else to buy tickets to Chase and Yep. But, yeah, no, can't do that last minute, though. If, uh, if nobody takes advantage of a choose-your-own-tour slot, we, we, get a night off. we effectively get a night off, which isn't the worst thing. <laughs> it has been a busy summer. It has been a busy summer. But, yeah, we're still very excited about that because uh, we're hoping that it provides the opportunity for people to join us for some of the tours that we haven't had the opportunity to offer as often, namely our two brand-new tours, which are mm-hmm. Spectres and Shades of Court End and our relatively new tour, the Creepy Tales on Canvas. That's only been available on Fridays mostly, so yep. not everybody's been able to do a Friday tour. Yeah, Fridays, alternating Fridays, too. Mm-hmm. So basically each of those tours is running once every two weeks, which, you know, it, it can be hard. If you, if you don't, if you work on Friday nights or something like that, you know, maybe not the best opportunity for you, but you'll have more chances with the whole choose-your-own-tour thing. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, so what's the other thing? We have Alex Hill and Patrick Hahn. Yep. Hey, guys. Uh, yeah, good evening. Glad that you are here to join us. Hope, <laughs> hope everybody's, uh, uh, you okay, right? your beard. <laughs> I haven't even heard of this yet. I had an Italian water done. I, I learned something about myself today. I learned that I can rise and eat. It is a skill. Yeah, I really actually is. <laughs> I learned this one a long time ago in Vermont with Gil's Grinders. They're some of the best grinders ever. Um, but they're fantastic. Very good. Not as many Jersey Mike's, but there you go. Sure. Oh, and I think, yeah, the one other thing was um, this, this past Saturday, uh, well, we had, some, we had some good tours this past weekend, but our friends down in Richborough had their annual Brewtown USA. How was it? It was lovely. It was hot. They had massive fans. Which saved me. Yes. Yeah. So. Because I have got happy. 
Yeah, very, <laughs> very hot, but it was a lot of fun. Um, so, yeah, uh, keep an eye out on that. I think uh, I'm, I'm sure it will be around I'm, again. I'm sure they'll do it again next summer. So, uh, but yeah, a lot of fun. It seems like a consistent thing. Yeah. yeah.
So, um, but yeah, I do want to mention that before we really dive into these stories tonight, uh, I have to acknowledge that there was there's one individual that uh, has done a lot, a lot of research into Virginia hauntings in general, and of course, Mr. L.B. Taylor. Yeah, L.B. Taylor. Basically, all the stories you're going to hear tonight, um, he was the first one to um, to do some research on. Now, it's been some decades, and we have had the opportunity to kind of. Uh, um, to grow a little bit on some of the original research that he did. Well, uh, Mr. L.B. Taylor, very prolific author, he penned like 25 books about ghost stories in Virginia. Now, unfortunately, basically all of his books are out of print. Yeah, so um, if you find one, you're lucky. Yeah, you're, you're not going to find one new. You can find a lot of them used in like used bookstores or even in, like uh, used copies of them on Amazon and online retailers, stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, so you're not going to find um, new copies of his books around these days. We hope that might change eventually. That was not the same thing. Yeah. Now, that, um, you know, it's really it's fair to say that there's no individual that has done more singular research on the subject of ghosts in Virginia than L.B. Taylor. Mm-hmm. I do also now need to say, you know, unfortunately, you now Mr. Taylor, he did pass away back in 2014. He's no longer with us. We're not going to get any new Ghost of Virginia books by L.B. Taylor, but uh, very appreciative of the work that he did over the years to help raise the profile of uh, historic hauntings across uh, the state of Virginia. So uh, we will say that uh, some of the stuff that we're going to share tonight, uh, we uh, basically they're from, it's, some of it's from interviews, some of it's yeah. direct quotes from, from uh, that uh, L.B., that were related to L.B. Taylor. And uh, I do have to say that some of the some of the quotes we did go ahead. It took a couple liberties as far as modifying them just for clarity, or to let's just say change out some terms that aren't necessarily appropriate in the modern era. We'll leave it at that. Um, but just it, you know some, how some people spoke 30, 40 years ago, stuff like that. It is what it is. So. Uh, I will start uh, by, uh, we'll start over in the west end of the county in what is the uh, Tuckahoe neighborhood. So it's here. It's not the west end. Yes, the west end. Yep, <laughs> yep. Yeah, but you got so many like little subsections over there. There's Tuckahoe, of course, there's Shore Palm, Glen Allen, so stuff like that. But yes, the Tuckahoe neighborhood in the west end. We're talking, it's almost on the, the county line of Gooch. So yeah, it's way out there. Uh, here on River Road in the historic home known as Wichella, or the Paul House. The home was built in 1827 by Catherine Woodward, the daughter of a French barber named Druin. Druin had been granted the tract of land by a member of the esteemed Randolph family. L.B. Taylor was granted the opportunity to visit the home in the 1980s by the residents at the time, Mr. and Mrs. J. Donald Bevilda. He noted that the couple were very gracious hosts who took pride in showing off their beautiful and historic home, which was furnished with period pieces that aligned with the era in which the home was built. The walls of Wichello consist of brick that are about a foot thick with exterior clapboard to finish the look. The home stands a full two stories tall with a finished loft and basement. There are two rooms on each floor that open to the central hall. As you enter the house, the parlor is the first room on the right. The focal point of the room is a large fireplace, which itself is really not all that unusual. Almost every room in the house has a fireplace. 
but the fireplace and the parlor host legends that have long held the attention of those with an affinity for the macabre and treasure hunters alike. One story is that the skeletal remains of the former owner are buried seven feet beneath the fireplace. Okay. <laughs> There's another tale that states that treasure is secreted away on the property, either within the structure or on its grounds. Unfortunately, not every surface in the home is original, as desperate treasure hunters ripped out the beautiful wainscoting that must break the walls of the parlor. It is believed that in its earliest days, Michello was used as a tavern for those traveling between Richmond and Charlottesville or Lynchburg. It would have been primarily served as a rest stop for drinking and eating rather than lodging, as it was just simply too close to the city of Richmond for anyone to justify actually spending the night there. Just a few years after Catherine Woodward built the house, her daughter, Eliza Ann Woodward Winston, sold the house. The records on this are a little unclear, but it was either in 1838 or 1845. In either case, the new owner was an Englishman of questionable reputation named Richard Wichello. As owner and operator of the tavern, Wichello is said to have, had, said to have accumulated wealth, which according to one old report, was not come by in manners befitting a Christian gentleman. He was described as being miserly and cruel to his slaves, and it was rumored he ran games of chance, perhaps including cockfighting that were not always honest and above board. There is one reference to him as being the type of man who had a willingness to turn a penny by whatever so means. Here the story is picked up by A. H. Moncure, who claimed he was born in the house, probably sometime during the Civil War years. Later in his life, Moncure recalled a story about Wichello that he had learned in his youth. One night, about dusk in the year 1850, a cattle drover from the valley region to the west arrived at the tavern with a herd which he bedded down in the corral near the inn. And there, he stayed the night. The next day, he continued into the southern capital and sold his cattle, again, returning again to spend the night with the tavern keeper at Wichello. After dinner that night, Wichello invited his guests to accompany him to the country store, which was in reality a crossroads barroom just a few steps from the tavern. There, the two men had some drinks, and it was reported that Wichello and the drover became engrossed in a poker game. Anyway, the result was that Wichello went home richer by the amount the dealers had paid for the cattle, and the drover from the valley went to bed broke. In the morning, attendants found the innkeeper on the floor of his bedroom brutally murdered with his head beaten in and The drover was gone, so was his old red and white horse and all of the money Wichello was supposed to have had with him the night before. No trace was ever found of the cattleman, and no other solution for the tavern owner's death has ever been set forth. Other sources say that the man's death caused a few problems for the few friends he had. Where should they bury him? They were afraid of the slaves that he had mistreated digging up his body and treating it to varied indignities and retaliation. Mr. Moncure provided that answer. They dug secretly a hole alongside of the east chimney of the old tavern. Then they tunneled beneath the great brick chimney and shoved the coffin into the tunnel until it rested under the sack. That is Wichello's tomb, 
And from that fact, which later gained circulation, arose many of the reports of the ghost of the owner returning to guard the treasure, which his killer could not find, and which to this day is believed buried around the building. <laughs> the stories of the hidden cache of treasure have persisted, and there have been a number of fruitless searches for it through the years. At some point, the fireplace containing Luchella's remains was dug into, and the wall adjacent to it was ripped apart. One of the most intriguing incidents was recalled by Mrs. Joseph Crenshaw, who ran a tea shop in the house in the 1930s. She recalled many attempts had been made to find the reputed treasure of the man, and some tall tale was told, such as the one an old man <laughs> told me. <laughs> Uncle John came to me one day and said he had a device which wasn't any good for papers, and he wanted to try it out on the old cello board. He dug into what is now the kitchen, but alas, no riches, unless one counts the richness of the yarn old John unnamed treasure. And a device that wasn't any good for papers? That, that's what it said. That's what he said. But what was he doing to the papers? <laughs> <laughs> he wants to know. He's going to go find out. <laughs> Get to work, Nico. Sorry. That's what's wrong here. Um, we'll come back. Anyway, so... The old man assured me that no less than three times had he struck the very box which enclosed the well, only to have the spirit troves vanish, such as troves are said to do, because the digger could not refrain from speaking at his good fortune. Each time he said it sank down further out of sight and the hole filled with water. This last is true enough. The holes in the old kitchen were veritable wells and have had to be cemented over the water flowing into them as fast as the shovels made them open. Well, Miss Crenshaw may have had some difficulty believing Uncle John's story, even if it was told to her in dead seriousness, she nevertheless began to feel the house was haunted. For one thing, visitors to the tea room began to complain of a feeling. It became so strong to some that they left their order, ordered refreshments before enjoying them and washed out of the house. Then there was the mysterious clicking noise that wouldn't go away. Mrs. Crenshaw said it sounded like an invisible telegraph key and seemed to follow her throughout the house from room to room. Her maid heard it too. No matter which room Mrs. Crenshaw went into, immediately the clicking sound was there. She told the maid it was electric wire, even though she knew if the room wasn't electric wire, the house would have burned down by now. As Mrs. Crenshaw started to wonder about the traditions and legends of the house, she decided to put her faith in a source that would earn for the ridicule of her husband and friend, Lady Wonder, the fortune telling horse on the Petersburg Pike. Because why not? Yeah, if you, yeah, if you don't know. Um, hey, you're out of ideas that are logical, you're yeah. going to ask the psychic course. Go to the psychic course. So yeah. let, and actually, the, this story doesn't dive into Lady Wonder very much, and really, we don't. We should actually. We, we should. That. Yeah, cool. yeah. Lady Wonder is really fascinating. She was just as sounds like a psychic course, and they put this to the test several times over. They would basically ask the horse questions, and then it would like stomp out the answers on, on, a, keyboard. on a keyboard. And they, so many people tried to.
prove it wrong and say, trip it up. Trip it up and they would be able to give Yeah, but they, they could not really trip it up. They tested so many different ways, and Lady Wonder managed to come through time and again. We yeah. So now, I will say, um, we just mentioned a little while ago, as you heard, our friends down at Richbrow, they, to their credit, like to name their beers off of local lore, and they mm-hmm. do have a beer called Psychic Horse, which is, of named course, after. named after Lady Wonder. Isn't it beer? Isn't it beer? Mm-hmm. Not oh, my yeah. favorite. That's a good one. Yeah. So anyway, now, uh, after a few trivial questions to Lady Wonder, Mrs. Crenshaw asked Lady, is there a treasure in my house? Horse spelled out the affirmative. Where is it? Lady Wonder then spelled out chimney. Which chimney? East was the response, which correlates with the legend. Trying for more detail, she asks one more question and receives the answer, and east. Well, Mrs. Crenshaw was shocked at the answers, and while she eyed up that fireplace many times in the years that followed, she did not have the faith to actually care of her property. News of the legend soon spread, and Mrs. Crenshaw began receiving requests from Richmonders and others interested in seances and medium readings. Mrs. Crenshaw could not grant them all access to the home, but the first medium to preside over a seance saw three spirits. The first was a little girl, identified as the niece of a participant at the seance. The second was Sabra who was the nanny that took care of Mrs. Crenshaw when she was young. The spirit was pleased that Mrs. Crenshaw finally knew that she was with her. The final spirit was a man dressed in hunting clothes. She stated that he seemed to live at the home and that this was Richard Wichello. Several other people reported seeing him after the seance with their descriptions of his hunting clothes all the same. At another seance held in the house, a letter was written using spirit writing. It read, my treasure is not in the house, but in the yard. You should look in the backyard about 100 feet away from the house, marked by a little, and there's like a drawing that they did as part of the spirit writing, and it is about five feet under the earth. You should look toward the east when leaving the back steps and count until told to stop, then go back three paces. It was signed with the initials WRW. The Crenshaws never did search for the treasure. They were exhausted from repairs that needed to be made to the basement floor and chimneys from previous treasure hunters who searched for it. But she lived with spirits for 50 years at Wichello. She thought maybe Richard Wichello was content that his treasure would not be. Let's step And Wichello, if you're interested in looking it up, it is spelled um, W-H-I-C-H-E-L-L-O. So not like a not like a witch, but uh, the other witch. The other witch. Which way? So. And Nico is blocking me. <laughs> He's the third show. All right. So we're going to talk about the mad carpenter of cotton mouth, poker mouth, cotton mouth, and silly Yeah. The, they're the, all the same. They're all the same. The real name is apparently Cockermouth, which is actually named after a town in northwest 
England. But the name has been altered and all kinds of things and misspelled grossly in some cases over the years. But please. I, this was a rabbit hole for me. I spent hours trying to figure out what was going on with the story, and I still didn't quite come up with the answers I want. Proceed. I can't call the posters. Oh, this is going to be fun, then. I'm excited. <laughs>
working like a man possessed, so they tore up the floorboards of his chamber, but there was nothing there. He then loaded his double-barrel shotgun with extra shells, grabbed the knife, and a light. He went outside, placed the knife in his teeth, placed a pirate knife, crawled under as far as he could underneath the house, and then fired both barrels in the direction of where the noises seemed to come from. Satisfied he done all he could, and that if the noises were still being made by any mortal being, he had silenced the source for good. He then retired to bed. Considering that he turned down the lamp and pulled up his covers when the hammering and sawing began anew and continued through the night. Curiously, it was noted that Southern had had two vicious dogs that slept under the house. Not once during all this activity did they stir, except when he blasted his shotgun. Southern was described in the article as an ex-soldier who was afraid of nothing and not a person to make any statement of this character unless it was true. In fact, he offered to take anyone who doubted his story to the place uh, to his place for their own experience. He wanted to resolve this dilemma if possible. Now, there's no record of what happened after this, whether or not he actually found out the cause or whether the incessant nocturnal work persisted uh, in the spirit first finger that eventually drove him and his family from the house. Uh, as far as Chris and I were able to find, the house doesn't seem to be standing anymore, and the tracts of land that it was on seems to have been broken up uh, into other parcels of land at this point. That was one of the most aggravating pieces. Yeah, not knowing what happened to the house. We saw it was for sale in 1972. 78. 78. So they, so they said. Yeah. I'm also, I'm starting to wonder if that was a borderline fraudulent listing that somebody was trying to pass off some old-looking places as the Cockermouth Estate. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't know. Yeah. And it really, I, if you, the one absolutely certain remnant of um, Coppermouth that is still around today is the name of that one room. Yeah. It's uh, today. Apparently, for some reason, which I was not able to discern despite my searches, in 1942-1943, they, whether there was a change in ownership or something like that, they decided that they were going to change the name from um, Coppermouth, which is spelled just how it sounds, to Cooking Book, which is K K U K Y M U T H. And Cooking Book Road still exists out there off of Osborne Turnpike in uh, eastern Henrico. Yeah. So you can look it up and see it on the map. Um, but yeah, apparently that name change for whatever reason abruptly happened in 1942, 1943. But now, honestly, this spiritual hyperdermal is still going on. I yeah, and, and Matt, it could be that. Um, there was never a follow Even though um, this guy was very real, very credible, very respected in the community, and this article was written, they didn't do a follow-up, which also blows my mind. But in any case, so yeah. I got time machine, so I can find out. Yeah. Yeah, so... I spent a lot of time scouring the property records to see what I could find and still effectively came up empty. So, might have to just take a drive out there and have a little look around with my own two eyes. We're going to get a picture. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. And not have hungry for cookies. Cooking. 
get cream guy. That's the best I got. Yeah, that's the best you want some smart cookies, they're in the pantry. Do I go into the pantry right now? You're welcome. Right? <laughs> you are welcome to do so if you'd like. There is a plug bag. And there's a plug bag in the pantry. The pantry is the thing that goes in. It's one of the ones that are big. Ah. Yeah, the big one big door so you get in the kitchen. So. Either the second one. Word, guys. <laughs> <laughs> because, yes, I have a Girl Scout that I'm on this one. Oh, um. Oh, I don't know that one. Never mind. Anyway, uh, so this, we have, uh, this is like episode 91 for us. And to date, until this moment, we have not repeated the story. <laughs> we, I've been good. We are going to break that old tradition right now. We are going to repeat a story that we did first back in, it's been over three years, over three years ago on our Haunted Highways episode one, <laughs> which was, I think it was in like April of 2020. And we can't, we are doing this because we simply cannot do Haunted Henrico without talking about Pocahontas Parkway. So, so Pocahontas Parkway out there in Eastern Henrico, Route 895, whole road stretching 8.8 miles between Henrico and Chesterfield counties, Virginia. Construction began on October 13, 1998, and was planned to be completed in April 2002, but it wasn't completed fully until September of that year. A portion of the parkway opened in May of 2002, and shortly thereafter, stories of three ghostly Native Americans started to circulate. And where is it? Uh, 895, Oak Island Parkway between Route 95, or I-95, and basically goes to the airport. Oh. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh, it starts south of town, down in Chesterfield, but then it comes up into Henrico. Not the way that would be. Yeah. So, the first sighting was from a truck driver. He reported seeing Native Americans on horseback dashing along through the cars and trucks. Drum beats and chanting accompanied the sighting and came from the direction of the nearby woods. Bears with torches would be seen dotting the wooded hilltop while the natives would dash through and around the toll booth. A story reported in the Richmond Times-Dispatch stated that the parkway was built where Native Americans once hunted, fished, and lived. They even stated burials may have been disturbed as a part of the construction. The locals, when interviewed, claimed to have heard the drumming and chants for years. This was nothing new for them. They believed that the building of the parkway had started the was not what actually had started the haunting. Instead, the ghosts were doing what they had always done, just now across six lanes of traffic. Another truck driver believed it was the local tribe protesting when he saw the ghostly natives on the parkway. But when he mentioned it to the toll taker, the toll taker explained that she had heard and seen too many things for it to be anything but ghostly activity. 
she filed a report for regulations at the end of her shift. The state police were called in to investigate, but, as you might imagine, they found nothing. Troopers working the graveyard shift in that area responded to a dozen calls about the native, and two incidents were documented in incident reports. The first was at 3.11 a.m. on July 1, 2002, and the second two days later at 1.44 a.m. Both reports described the specter as having cloudy but fully formed legs, arms, and torso, but only the vague outline of the head. Both troopers and toll workers have reported hearing made drums, uh, mingling whoops and shouts, and cries of dozens of voices that could even drown out the noise of the tractor trailers. It lasted until long after midnight. Someone suggested to a trooper who had heard it that it was the kennel uh, dogs or from some geese or ducks or something like that. His response, I know what a bunch of hunting dogs sound like, and it doesn't sound anything like that. Deanna Beecham of the local Nazman tribe stated that these activities were absolutely not a protest by Native Americans. The Nazman were awaiting to receive their federal recognition, and as, uh, and as such, such activities would do more harm than good at the time. Chief Stephen Atkins of the Chickahominy tribe agreed with her assessment. Since receiving their federal recognition, things at the parkway actually seem to have quieted down. They haven't quite... Uh, haven't gone away completely, but spirits seem to be a little quieter about it. And we have done Haunted Highway twice. Yeah, we had two Haunted Highway yeah. so They were both in 2020. So, back back in 2020 and you'll be able to um, see those episodes. We've had that one of that thing, so. <laughs> You know, Prime Day deliveries at 8 o'clock at night. Well, All right, so now we're going to go over to Meadow Farm, which is another one of our uh, historic resources. And what is the field trip? Yep. Did you know they were most left out there? I did. Good. They told us when we went. Uh-huh. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of those places I still need to get to. You should, it's really cool. Yeah, because it's not far from here. Uh, no, it's not. It's not. And it's cute. All right. So, um, it attracts thousands, thousands of people per year to partake in its various educational and interesting programs that they offer. This is Meadow Farm, once uh, located on Mountain Road in Glen Allen, and it's listed, of course, on our National Register. The farm was donated to the county in 1976 by Elizabeth Adams Crump, in memory of her husband, Federal Shepherd. The land had been in his family uh, since 1713. The architectural studies disclosed that at one time the property had been on a naming site along the North Run Creek. Today, there are picnic shelters, playground equipment, alongside farm museum, farms, kitchens, accounts showing that modern development and historic preservation can coexist. Some brief history on the farm. Dr. and Mrs. John Mosby Shepherd were the original owners of the 165-acre farm estate. They raised nine children and succeeding generations continued to run the estate. In August of 1800, two slaves by the name of Tom and Pharaoh warned Mosby Shepherd of a proposed slave uprising, which uh, became known as Gabriel's Rebellion. Mosby Shepherd notified the governor, James Monroe, who called out the local military guard and the rebellion was formed. The effects of the conspiracy were profound as a result. 
uh, county and state leaders into legislation that would tightly regulate the movements of enslaved and free blacks, making their lives even more harsh. They controlled the area and began picking up conspirators. Gabriel escaped downriver to Norfolk, but he was spotted and betrayed there by another slave named Will Billy King. More than 70 enslaved men were arrested by law enforcement for conspiracy and Gabriel was returned to Richmond for questioning, but he didn't submit. The trial was heard by five justices rather than a jury, and a recruit, Ben Wolfhook, testified that Gabriel intended on writing the words death or liberty on the silk flag, preferring Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech of 1775. One of the enslaved men reported, reportedly said, I have nothing more to offer than what General Washington would have had to offer had he been taken by the British and put to trial. his two brothers, and 23 other slaves were hanged. One individual committed suicide before his arraignment. Eight enslaved men were moved or sold outside of Virginia. Thirteen were found guilty or were pardoned by the governor. Twenty-five were acquitted. Two men received their freedom for informing the slaveholder of the This is Crump, but said to have been well, a little bit eccentric. She loved Wanda Burdett of Richmond was visiting the Farm Museum. She said that she was walking through the museum with a friend, and suddenly her beaded watch lit off her arm and flew off the floor. It's like somebody had snatched it from her wrist, even though the watch had a pair of plants on it. She told the tour guide about it. They decided to put out, this is Mrs. Crump. She loves beaded jewelry. Another incident was in Trump and Jordy. Well, that was reported by staff writer Tom Howard for the Richmond Times Cash visit to the park. Yes, Howard had an interest in the paranormal, and he had heard that uh, there is an upstairs window where it's possible to catch a glimpse of the ghost in the old Trump house. Curious about these sightings, he interviewed Ronald Clark, who was an employee at the park. Clark told him that one morning when he arrived at work, he was accompanied by his seven-year-old nephew. Clark happened to look up and saw that someone was the back the curtains of the upstairs bedroom who was looking out. His nephew saw the same thing, but added he thought it was a woman. Clark knew no one was supposed to be in the house. He knocked on the door several times, but no one answered. At 9.45, Sam Jones arrived and was told of the sighting. Sam was the one who had the keys to the building, and he and Clark went to search it. There was no one there. House was equipped with an alarm, motion detectors. So if someone managed to get in without tripping the alarm, motion detectors would have gone off. Of course, there are clear lines of sight around the house. Clark would have seen someone exiting the building when he had been waiting for Sam to show up. They still have not been explained. Site manager Linda Eckler and her taught her own experience in that bedroom while she was giving a tour. She was standing by the mantel of the fireplace. There was a sleep toy on the mantel that she remembered being in a certain she turned her head to point out something in the room, and when she turned back, the toy had been turned 45 degrees from where it had been. It definitely gave her an unsettled feeling for the rest of her tour. Another one of the staff members reported missing two brooches from her office in a small room of the house. Let's hide. Let's love. There was no luck. She could not find them. Sometime later, when she closed her office for the night, she said she remembered clearing a, the top of her desk of everything but a piece of paper. As she was the last one to leave, she set the alarms and locked up. Next day, she turned off the alarms. She went into her office, 
And there, beside the sheet of paper on top of the desk, was one of her two brochures. What? Teacher searching. For? Yeah. I'm posting our two uh, on the highway episodes that we previously did. Yeah, sure. Anyway, yes.
My mother said I kept telling her over and over that my doppelganger was in the room and for her to not let it get me. Somehow, I slowly got better and gave birth to a healthy young girl. And I don't remember anything about the doppelganger. We moved into a house on Grove Avenue in Highland Springs in December of 1988. We had not been in the house long when one night I put my two-year-old son in his bed, and after a walk out of the room, he started yelling, Mama, Mama. I went back in, and he was crying and pointing to the middle of the room, saying, There's a man. Make him leave. There was nothing there. He was so scared and crying that I picked him up and took him into my bedroom, sat him on my lap, and comforted him. All of a sudden, the color drained from his face, and his eyes opened wide in terror. He pointed toward the bedroom door and yelled, There he is! There he is! Again, I saw nothing. Then my husband had another nightmare, his final one. He jumped up out of bed screaming, He followed us! He's here! You don't belong here! Get out! Go back to your house in Samson! My husband has not had a knife. It's a pretty freaky story. It is. It's a very freaky story. Especially when you're going to check and see if you go out there and then they go to the that lives there. Mm-hmm. So that's the They follow? Follow. Hi, Beck. How are you doing? Back out. Hi, buddy. Do you like our new buddy? We miss you. We do miss you. We do miss you. Hope you're doing well. All right, so this is another one that I've been doing. Hi, Donnie. He's asking about the, 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 about Ben? Yeah, his name is Ben, right? Yeah, yeah Ben. Ah! I don't know why I decided to call him Ben, but it's Ben. Uh, all right, so this is known as the little boy in the sailor suit. Uh, this is a grand manor home from the 1800s that resides on 20 beautiful acres in the Chetahoon District. It's Woodside, a Greek revival-style rural, rural villa built between 1854 and 1858, the ancestral home of the Wickham family located on campus. Julia Wickham Poacher, around the turn of the 20th century, wrote about the house describing it as one of the most beautiful estates I have ever seen. The property consisted of most varied land, hills, valleys, pretty little mountain streams, woods, open spaces, pastures. Short, it had a variety of land, landscape. It is believed Woodside was built on an area that was once a native village. In the 18th century, the land belonged to the Randolph family of Tuckahoe, and it was from this holding that John Wickham brought bought an eight. <laughs> Contact issue? Yes, they just crippled. Okay, there we go. Now I can say that. Uh, it bought, bought a 629 acre tract of land. Don Wickham later built up his plantation holdings to more than 2,700 acres bordering both the James River and the Tentacle Creek. On the main floor, there are four large rooms with 12 foot ceilings and three smaller rooms. The upper floor includes three bedrooms, a wide hall with 12-foot ceilings, plus a bathroom, a wine room, and storeroom. A large English basement contains a central hall with 10 feet wide and six rooms with nine-foot ceilings. Kitchen, dining room, and other rooms are in the basement, which, is, uh, which in the decades before modern heating and air conditioning were cooler in the summer and warmer in the winter than the rooms above. There's even a secret door to a library. Okay. 
<laughs> During the Civil War, squad of Colonel Ulrich Zoldrin's Union Cavalry raided Woodside, freed the slaves, and emptied the smokehouse. Although there was no appreciable piece of damage to the house itself, the war brought considerable tragedy to the resident family. At least two members of the family were killed in the fighting, and one young mother and two of her children also died. The years following the Civil War, Woodside came upon the first time. By 1890, the house was run down and overgrown, with boom grass growing up to the door. However, the historic home was eventually restored and preserved with painstaking care. For more than a century, it has reputedly been haunted. Julia Wickham will, uh, will, not, me, will does not deny this. She says that our spirits here, but they're friendly. They're good presences. I must admit that when I was a child, I was sometimes afraid to come here, but now that I live here, I've never gotten a negative feeling. There's nothing evil here. Julia feels that since the house has always been in the family, any ghosts that Woodside are probably relatives. Friends who have stayed at the house told her of a peculiar phenomenon. They said they hear carriages of another era right up to the front of the house. They thought this was particularly strange because the driveway today is actually on back of the house. I explained to them that in the 19th century and early 20th century, the driveway was in the front of the house, and that might explain those noises. Julia also adds that she especially likes the library before. It's definitely the best room in the house for feeling the presence of past relatives. We believe that we have a tidy ghost in that room. Husband's a skeptic, but we have both found someone or something has replaced books my husband has taken down to be put them back on the shelves at night. We know neither one of us did that. One period, Julia has felt a strong sensation of is that of her grandmother, who was born in the house and lived there until the age of 93. She died in 1995. Julia recalled shortly after she passed away, I was packing up some of her stuff, and I, well, I was very disturbed and crying. Suddenly, I felt someone come up behind me, hug me. I thought it was my husband, but when I turned around, there was nobody there. And I even heard somebody say, Julia couple of times. I believed it was her, my grandmother letting me know that everything's okay. There's also an occasional set operation seen in the upstairs bedroom. The vision of a small boy in a sailor suit. Julia's three-year-old nephew once told her he had seen a little boy in a sailor suit in the room. Mystery was probably solved when uh, Julia actually found an old photo of her late uncle Littleton. It was taken when he was a little boy. Yes, it's I like that story. Mm-hmm. I like happy ghost talking. So we're going to go ahead. We're going to wrap up tonight with another letter to the author, if you will. This is a this letter came from uh, Elisa Chapel, uh, and a little bit on more on the recent side. It was uh, sent in December of 1999. Uh, he and Ben, in turn, went ahead and published it in one of the social media. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, it makes me feel old. It made me feel old. I graduated high school. Oh, I, mean, I was born in 1995. So. Yeah. I, I started out in 1995. Oh, God. <laughs> so, Lisa wrote, when I was 15, she's right back. This was back in 1973. She wrote the letter that. 
When I was 15, back in 1973, <clears throat> my family and I moved into a tri-level in the far west end of Richmond. The subdivision is called Tuckahoe Village, and uh, obviously a tri-level in a not-so-old subdivision is a relatively new house, and I wouldn't think that there would be a ghost in such a place. <laughs> but as soon as we moved in, I started seeing what I think called streaks of light. These streaks only appeared in the lower part of the house, which consisted of a den, a bedroom I shared with my 13-year-old sister, a half bath, and a laundry room. I never saw anything on the upper levels of the house, but when I would be in the den, just out, uh, out of the corner of my eye, I would see a whitish streak of light arch into a corner or behind a chair or into the hallway. They were never directly in front of me, just off to the side, enough to catch my attention and it make me turn my head to try and see them better. They would be on the left side of the room or the right, it didn't seem to matter, and eventually they began to make me curious. What were they, and how was the light getting into the room? At first, I thought it must be car lights from outside, reflecting and catching my eye. When I would see one, I'd jump up and run to the window to see if the car had just driven by, but there never was a car. I'd adjust the shades in the room to see if maybe light could get in around the edges, but I never could figure it out. Eventually, I ignored them but I saw them every day, and it didn't seem to matter if it was day or night. I simply had no idea what they were, and I couldn't explain them. By the time we had lived in the house for two years, I began seeing them in my room at the back of the house. This was very confusing to me, since I could not figure out how lights and cars would be able to get into my room with only one small window on the side. I began to think I must be seeing things, since I didn't see them anywhere else in the house. However, one night when I was 18 and soon to be married to my high school sweetheart, I saw something that would make me realize I had been living as a ghost for three years. My sister and I had just gone to bed and turned out the light. I remember laying back on the pillow and looking up towards the ceiling. I was definitely not asleep. But, uh, suddenly, at ceiling height, just above my feet, and upper torso appeared. It was a woman, and she looked like a 1920s flapper. She even had the little band around her head as the side. I could see her grinning face, neck, shoulders, and upper body were very clearly, but nothing below that. Within seconds, she swooped toward my face, and immediately to the right of my face was a bright light. I can remember thinking to myself, if you think I'm going to turn my head and look right at you, you're crazy. After about ten seconds, the light just faded away. I whispered to my sister, Wendy, Wendy, did you see that? but she must have been asleep as she didn't answer. I took a deep breath and thought, well, we have a ghost. And if that's the best you can do, knock yourself out. It seems odd, but I felt like it couldn't get much worse than that, and it didn't kill me, so I turned over to face the wall and went to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that's great reason. Yeah. And she got away with it. Goes on. To close out, I've read in your books about others who have seen strange streaks of light, and I've also seen what people claim to be photographs of ghosts that look like what I've seen on a daily basis. I never saw the woman ghost after that final occurrence, and I married and left home shortly thereafter. I wonder if she's there. Hey, a fun little story. Yeah. I'm from the area. And, of course, that is just kind of scratching the surface. There's other stuff in Henrico. Yeah. But we thought that was a nice mix for this evening. And of course we uh, we did we finally did it. We repeated the story. We did so intentionally because again, 
we felt we couldn't do it this uh, episode without bringing up uh, Pocahontas Park. So. I think it's nice to talk about the battlefield. Which one? The one that. Seven Pines, Melbourne Hill. Cold Harbor is actually in the. Cold Harbor is in It is, yeah, so it's not in right now. There's. Um, Well, which is in Henrico. Uh, oh, okay. In my case, um, Fort Eustis. Oh, yeah. Not Eustis. Um, no, 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 no. I don't know. Harrison. Well, they would have talked about Yeah. Fort Eustis is actually done tight water. Yeah. Yeah, it's Harrison, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is Harrison. Yeah, but yeah, that means probably won't be the last we hear of Henrico County. That's right now. It's old and it's okay. Really great guy. Wrote some great books. Yeah. Got a really cool 
British sense of humor. Yeah. It, I was very amused when I was reading. So. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and reverse from Cleveland Bears. So, we'll be, we'll be getting there. We'll be uh, doing uh, some stories about, uh, uh, about that sometime uh, in the not not too distant future. And we do, of course, we know that we also have the uh, outstanding request for Boston as well. Okay. So, Boston. Because I started in Massachusetts, Chris, but I can see what I can find on Yep. Yeah. Because we've done a few things in Boston. We have done a few things in Boston. But, uh, well, that's that. We did one in Canada, and at least two, if not three, of the stories from, were from Toronto. Yeah. So I'm sure that we got more stuff for Toronto, but, yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, got Haunted Cities over the next couple of weeks, and uh, we'll see where we end up going from there. But, yes, Columbus, Ohio, two weeks from today, and Toronto, Canada in about a month. And uh, in the meantime, um, don't forget, you can come on out, see us at uh, Eyeballs and Antiques off of uh, West Broad Street in, uh, in, in Henrico uh, on Saturday for their summer ween event. Uh, what else we got going on? We've got the, uh, the John Marshall House tour uh, that we're going to be doing. Um, of course, we have tours that are running basically every night of the week, so you can come out and join us.
yeah, TikTok, Richmond Ponds, I think. You gotta, you gotta make a link tree. Oh God, I do. Getting to that point, do I need to make a link I, tree? I think so. Oh, well done. Because you can't, you can't add like a TikTok link on your Instagram like you can YouTube. Yep. Oh, okay. TikTok is at Haunts of Richmond, so that one fairly straightforward. Um, but yeah, at Haunts of Richmond, and then of course everything that we do here, our Facebook live shows, we do download and then subsequently upload them to YouTube. So uh, it's uh, you know as great of a platform as uh, Facebook has been for us to be able to go ahead and get these shows out there and get them recorded in the first place. I have to admit that. YouTube makes a better archive. It's much easier to manage. So if you want to search for some particular story or something like that that we have done on one of these shows, YouTube is the place to look because it's just so much easier, honestly, to work with on that platform. So, um, yeah, you can look up Haunts of Richmond on YouTube as well. But, yeah, gosh, we got, um, so, we got, we got so much going on. We keep busy. But, uh, and yes, Dana, we, we do know uh, Boston. We got it um, got it on. <laughs> yeah, I have literally 12 trips in the book right now. So we will uh, aim to get to Boston sooner than later. So, yeah. Anyways. For you. Because I have to open a coffee shop tomorrow. She turns into a pumpkin at like 9.30. Yeah. I know, yeah. I know it's already about 9.45. Well, her hair's already kind of turning red. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's already I'll start sprouting these soon. All right. Well, now we're rambling. But um, anyway, thank you all again for watching. And uh, come on out and see us at one of our events. Uh, drop us a note online. And, yeah. We'll see you all soon. Everybody stay cool out there in the summer heat. Yeah. But, yeah. Come join us in the shadows. Thank you. So, have a good night, y'all. Bye.